Let's pray together. Father, we thank you as we hear stories from the Finleys, as we look around the context of our own lives, as we even consider our own spiritual journeys. We thank you that you are a God who continues to change lives, that you are actively involved uh, in our circumstances, that you continue to grow people more and more into the likeness of your Son, that you bless us with a unique nearness of you, that we can express these things in worship together. Uh, Lord, we worship you as a great and mighty God. You are worthy of our praise. You're worthy of our lives. And we pray today that as we turn our attention to, to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, that you would continue to do this ever-changing work in us, that you would meet us where we are today, that you would prepare us for things that would be coming in the future, and that you would be glorified as we continue to faithfully follow you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Everybody likes an underdog, but nobody wants to be one. Everybody likes an underdog, but nobody wants to be one. Think about it. The idea of the underdog and our enjoyment of those stories really translates across multiple aspects of our society. Of course, the classic underdog stories that we often see in the media are sports-related, aren't they? I mean, Cleveland won something. I know, amazing, especially for those of us from New England. Ooh. But beyond that, beyond that, you can think of the underdog stories that happen with regard to race, with regard to class, with regard to gender, with regard to politics, with regard to the workplace. Everybody likes the story of the underdog but it's interesting that nobody wants to be that underdog. I mean, we love to see the stories where people who shouldn't succeed find a way to be successful. Those are the ones that we really latch on to. But when the privileged get what they think they deserve, that's not particularly interesting to us. If the six foot seven, 240 pound kid gets a college scholarship to play football, it's like, yeah, so what? That's supposed to happen. We want the five foot eight, pudgy white kid to get that scholarship. If the handsome prince gets the girl, like, yeah, I guess that's just the way of life. We want the math geek to get the hot chick to go to prom with. If the woman from the right side of the tracks gets the job, yeah, okay. We really like it when the woman from the wrong side of the tracks gets the job. But the more you think about all these examples, and many more, they're fun. They're engaging. These are the stories that we love. But even though we love those stories, you and I don't want to be the underdogs in our own stories, do we? I mean, we don't want to be the kid that's physically challenged or has socially awkward tendencies or the one that really is from the wrong side of the tracks. I mean, none of us want to be that guy or that girl. The same holds true when it comes to experiencing God or participating in the powerful works of God in this life. Nobody wants to be the underdog in this arena as well. And this morning we're reminded of the words of God to the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And so I want to ask you to grab a Bible to open with me. 2 Corinthians 12, you can find that 
uh, on page nine, not supposed to be on the screen, 900 something, 970. Paul says, or the Lord says to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. And this gives us a glimpse into how God's power is displayed in our lives. Everyone wants to have the unique experiences of God that we read about or that we hear about from our friends or our neighbors. Maybe we even had them ourselves. Everyone wants to be well equipped from an external standpoint for the works of God in our lives. But here we get a glimpse into how God's power is really displayed, and it's a way that might be surprising to some of us. And it's certainly a way that not many of us would ask for or even look for. But before we get to that verse more specifically, let's explore the larger passage. Today we continue in our series, Rethinking Your Favorite Bible Verse. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 12 debunks a number of myths about God's power before he gets to the substance of his power in this verse that we just mentioned. So if you haven't opened your Bible yet, page 970, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, you're going to want to follow along this morning. The first thing that we see is this. In the larger context of 2 Corinthians, there is a challenge that is before this Apostle Paul, and the challenge is this. We know that God is blessing you if we see external signs of his blessing. We know that God is blessing you if it looks like you're being blessed. But if it looks like you're not being blessed, well then guess what? God is not with you. And Paul starts down this path of boasting in 1 Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians 11, he's boasting about his own qualifications. He's boasting about some of the ways that he's suffered. And then he comes to chapter 12, and he begins to tell about a very unique experience. But the point of telling this experience is to highlight that it is not in our mystical spiritual experiences that God's power is primarily shown. Not that way. Look with me at chapter 12. It says, I must go on boasting. Though there's nothing to be gained by it, I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter, On behalf of this man I will boast, but on my own behalf I will not boast, except of my weakness. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So we see a mystical spiritual experience. Paul speaking in the third person, and he's talking about himself being caught up, in his words, to the third heaven or into paradise. This is most likely a vision of some kind that Paul had. One of these visions, though, that is not just one of those things that you have a dream in the middle of the night and you kind of wake up and you fuzzily remember it the next day. I mean, this is a life-changing type of vision. 
And it's interesting that as he talks about it, that he talks about this spiritual experience in a way that moves the attention away from himself and towards something else that he's going to talk about down the road a little bit further. Why is he talking in the third person? Because he doesn't want the focus to be on him. It's sort of like when some of you come into one of your pastor's offices and you say, Pastor, I have a friend who struggles with dot, 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 dot. You don't want the focus to be on you, either positive or negatively. Let me tell you, if you come in and you tell us that you have a, we know it's you. Okay? Just get that out on the table. Paul is saying, I have a friend who was caught up into the third heaven. And he's doing so because he does not want the focus to be on him. Or even on the event itself. It's interesting to note that he doesn't take this mystical, even life-changing spiritual experience on the same level to what he's writing to these people in the church. His experience was minimized. There was no book deal following, 90 minutes in heaven. There was no movie coming out. Heaven is for real. Paul is caught up into this vision, and he tells them just a glimpse. He doesn't even tell them what it's about. He just gives them a little taste for the sake of saying, that was awesome, but there's something more important. And it's coming. This last week, I met a man, uh, and as we began to talk, he asked me what I do for a living. I told him uh, that we just moved here a year ago, just a year ago, this last week. And he said, are you on crack? And I said, no, we love it here. It's been wonderful. And he goes, okay, well, what do you do? I said, I'm a pastor. And his whole countenance changed. And he got serious and he said, come, come over here. And he took me over into the corner and he says, I don't tell anybody this story except for a couple of other pastors I know, but I want to encourage you with it. And I said, oh, okay, go ahead. And he begins to tell me how he's a Vietnam vet and because of his time in Vietnam, he's had multiple medical complications over the years. And just a couple years ago, he was in the hospital, and, and he almost died. Uh, and as he's telling me the story, he says, but pastor, Jesus appeared to me in a vision when I was in the hospital. Now, depending upon your disposition, when somebody tells you Jesus appeared to me, some of you automatically say, eh, I don't think so. It was the meds. Some of you automatically say, yeah, okay, well, tell me more. Uh, my, my inclination is to just take people at face value and say, okay, well, tell me more. I mean, did Jesus really appear? I don't really know, but um, I'll, take, I'll take his word for it. And so he goes on to tell me the story. Jesus appeared to me the vision, and he walked me down the hallway of the hospital. And he said to me, that person, is, his time is up. And this person is going to make it. And he has a family. And this person is going to make it. And this person, his time is up. And as we got to the end of the hallway, I looked at him and I said, well, what about me? And he said, you're going to be just fine. Keep going. And he said, Pastor, I don't tell anybody that story. But I wanted to encourage you. He's real. You keep going in what you're doing. And what impressed me about the man and the story 
was not the vision. I've heard of people having visions like this before, and I've heard a story even very similar to this one. What impressed me about that interaction was the fact that this guy had seemingly a life-changing experience in which he encountered Jesus, but he doesn't tell anybody about it. Why? I think I know why. And we're going to find out in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 because our personal, even mystical, spiritual experience, as wonderfully encouraging as they are, those, that's not the way God shows his power in its greatest form. This is a great experience for this guy, but he knew that there was something even better that was the Lord at work in him. We see the motivation for Paul not sharing about this vision in verse 6, he says to them, I refrain from it so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. He doesn't want the focus to be on him, number one, but even more than that, he does want the focus to be on his life. How do people observe him living? What are people hearing him teach? These are ways in which he wants them to understand the work of God in him and through him. I wonder if the same could be said about you. Is that how you want people to know God? Through your life? In you? In the actions that you have, even in the toughest moments? Or through you, the words that you give to those around you? I think immediately we have some form of application here. We have the propensity to accept our spiritual experiences as the highest form of God's power. And I understand why. Because when you experience a nearness of God that's unique, it's amazing. It really is. To sense his glory, to hear that nudge from the Holy Spirit, to engage him in a way that isn't common to our everyday life. But that's not the highest form of God's power. There's something higher. He goes on in verses 7 and 8, to point another way that God's power is not shown in its primary force. He says God's power is not shown primarily when we are functioning at maximum capacity. The tendency for us as Christians is to think, when I am in a place, when my skills are being used to the maximum, then God's power is really evident. When I'm in a place when I feel really good physically, God's power is evident. When I'm in a place where my gifts are being displayed and I'm maximized, then God's power is evident. And we even use different expressions common in our communication to talk about that. But here we see that this is not actually the highest point of God's power. Verse 7, Paul says that he's refraining from us, that no one may think uh, more of him than he sees or hears. He goes on to say, So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. The thorn in the flesh. It sounds to me like this is the opposite of Paul functioning at his maximum capacity. 
It's the opposite of him feeling activated. It's the opposite of him feeling like he's right down the middle of his gifts and skills. It sounds like there's tormenting of some form that's happening here. What is the thorn? Well, the short answer is we don't know. If you ask a group of college students, and I remember having this conversation multiple times, you ask some college Christians what they think the thorn is. It's, it's almost comical, but it's, but it's illustrative of how we normally look at this. All the 18 to 22-year-old men say almost always the same thing. Oh, that's easy, Pastor. The thorn is clearly lust. Why? Because 18 to 22-year-old men struggle a lot with lust. And if you'd ask the college women, what is the thorn? They would say, oh, that's easy, Pastor. It's, it's issues of security. I mean, clearly he's being persecuted. He's being threatened on all sides. Well, why? Because a lot of 18 to 22-year-old women uh, deal with issues of security. I know those are generalizations, but the point is, is that when we look at the thorn, we tend to insert our own personal struggles with what that could be. And actually, maybe that's intentional. He doesn't tell us what the thorn is because he doesn't want to get bogged down. That's not the most important. I mean, most scholars think that it's probably some form of ongoing illness that he has. But what's more important than what this thorn in the flesh actually is is who it comes from. The original language here makes clear that this is not haphazard. It's not a result of his sin or it's not a result of judgment on him. It was intentional, this thorn in the flesh. And God is the unseen initiator behind this suffering. He doesn't tell us what it is because it doesn't really matter what it is. The unique thing about this suffering is that it was God-ordained, but it was executed by Satan himself. Another way to put it is that Satan sent the thorn in the flesh, but it was given to him by God for a purpose. Now stop and think about that for a moment. We often attribute God's blessing when things are going well, don't we? We often say on the external, if the decision is made and it goes in the way that I thought, oh, God is so good. And he is. But we imply in that statement that if the decision didn't go the way that I wanted it to go, that God isn't good. We say, oh, I'm healthy. God must be blessing. But here we see that God actually might be blessing through pain, through a thorn. He allows this difficulty in his life. It's not because of judgment. It's for his ultimate good. And in verse 7, we see that it will keep him from becoming conceited. Now, as it relates to seeing God's power at work in our life, there are so many times in life when we choose to, we, we think about the ways that we can engage in God's work, but there's a variety of difficulties that come before us. I mean, sometimes we feel like, well, I'm not trained well enough. Sometimes there's uh, internal tensions within inside of me. There's different life factors. There's personal shortcomings. Uh, my schedule is too busy. I have illness. I have a learning disability. I have physical disabilities. We've seen it a, a hundred times. 
And people, when they're wrestling with whether or not they should engage in God's work, and they're faced with these sorts of either internal or external difficulties, I can hear the patterns of almost two common responses. On one side, you hear the response fairly regularly, well, God isn't blessing me, and therefore I'm not going to serve him. And when he starts blessing me again, then I will serve him. On the other side, you hear the shortcomings used as the excuse, as if I want to serve God, but I'm not of the right pedigree, or I'm ill-equipped, or I'm too tired. And therefore, those people just do nothing because they're not functioning at 100%. And they don't want to be the underdog. I mean, nobody wants to be the underdog in their own story. I don't know about you, but I'm so thankful that the missionary to India, William Carey, steeped in grief at the loss of his children to disease. And then subsequently steeped in grief at the loss of his wife in the middle of India, across the known world from where he was from. I'm so thankful that he continued to keep going. That he didn't say, I'm not functioning at 100%. God's not at work. I'm out. I'm so thankful that Jonathan Edwards, Puritan pastor, after being fired from his church, surely struggling with despair, that he didn't just sort of mail it in and say, you know what, I'm not functioning at 100%. I'm going to not do anything. I'm thankful that Don and Angie, going around the world in a couple different spots, 28 years of Christian service, surely the ups and downs of Christian missionary service, that in those toughest moments when they weren't at 100%, that they didn't simply say, pack it up. We're going home. And I'm thankful for the Apostle Paul that despite a thorn in the flesh, whatever it was, that it did not stop him from serving Jesus. Instead, what did he do? He prayed. He trusted in God's goodness. He asked repeatedly that the Lord would remove this difficulty from him. And he continued to serve even when he physically didn't feel like it. He kept following Jesus. God's power in your life is not chiefly shown in the short-term external blessings that he gives. God's power in your life is not primarily shown in those mystical, spiritual experiences that you have, as wonderful as they are. Paul then gets to where God's power is really shown. And this is where this becomes a favorite Bible verse for so many of us. God's power in your life is displayed chiefly in your weakness. Look with me. Again at verse 8, he says, Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. Verse 9, but he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, Paul says, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then, then I am strong. 
The problem was that the Corinthians were saying, clearly you're not from God. Clearly you don't know God's power. Clearly you don't have his blessing upon your life because you're sick. (laughs) And he is saying, no, 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 actually, because I am sick and God is still doing all of these things through me, this shows his power even all the more. And God says to him, my grace is sufficient for you. Now, when we think about grace, we think about this term that is defined as unmerited favor. It's the favor of God that you can't earn. It's simply given to you. And we think about this in terms of the core of our salvation. There's nothing you can do to earn your salvation, to earn fellowship with God, to earn the forgiveness of your sins. God gives it to you by grace. You can't earn it. Unmerited favor. And when he gives you his grace, he accepts you into the family. You are adopted by him. And he saves you. But beyond that, there's an ongoing grace in life that he gives, a sustaining grace. This is similar. You don't deserve it. He gives it freely. But it happens in these weak moments. And what he is saying to Paul is, you don't need anything but what I'm going to give you. And when you really think about it, you don't have anything except for what I've allowed for you. His power is made perfect in weakness. That is to say, his power is most greatly displayed when you are outside of your area of personal strength. When you are outside of that lane of your unique giftedness or your skill set, his power is most greatly displayed when you are on attack on all sides, when you don't feel well, when you have migraines, when you have insomnia, when you cannot do things of your own accord, and yet he still does things in you and through you. That's an incredible type of power. Jonathan Edwards once said, Grace is God's glory begun, and glory is God's grace perfected. As you know, I love Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the famous Baptist preacher. He was one of the greatest preachers in the history of England. And he was known for his power, practically and spiritually speaking. But embedded in that life of spiritual power was a life of emotional and physical suffering, And it's a profound example of Paul's principle here of Christ's power being made perfect in weakness. Spurgeon suffered from recurring bouts of depression through his life. And because of his own popularity and some of the unpopular stands that he would take against the theological liberalism of the day, uh, he always was under ridicule from others, including even from other pastors. Added to this was his need to provide relentless care for his wife, who was an invalid for most of their married life. And if that wasn't enough, Spurgeon spent nearly a third of his last 27 years of ministry out of the pulpit because of physical illness. There was hardly a weakness, an insult, a hardship, or a difficulty that Charles Spurgeon did not know personally. Nevertheless, this was his response to his suffering and weakness as a minister. He said this, Instruments shall be used, but their intrinsic weakness shall be clearly manifested. There shall be no division of the glory. 
No diminishing of the honor due the great worker. The man shall be emptied of himself and then filled with the Holy Ghost. My witness is that those who are honored of their Lord in public have usually to endure a secret chastening or to carry a peculiar cross, lest by any means they exalt themselves and fall into the snare of the devil. Such humbling but salutary messages of our depressions whisper in our ears. They tell us in a manner not to be mistaken that we are but men, frail, feeble, and apt to faint. God's power is perfectly shown when he gives grace to you in your weakest moments. And if you want to experience God's power in your life, and I'm sure by the very nature of you being in church on Sunday morning, there's part of you that wants to experience God's power in your life. If you want to experience his power in your life, then you should actually begin to expect some of these types of sufferings that we're talking about. They shouldn't surprise you. (laughs) They shouldn't be misconstrued as often an attack as sometimes they are. He tells us in verse 10 what types of things to expect. Weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities. But he actually boasts in such weaknesses. Jesus says as much to his disciples. John 16, says, I have said these things to you that you may have peace in me. In the world you have tribulation. But take heart, because I've overcome the world. Likewise, 1 Peter 4 indicates that those thorns in the flesh or those persecutions that come from the outside are actually a a vehicle that God uses to help people live for him. He says this, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of time in the flesh No longer for human passions, but for the will of God. God's power is perfectly displayed as he shows grace to you in your weakness. And so the charge, Christian, is then rest in this grace. Some of you are here today and you struggle. I know you do. I wonder what your weakness is. Some of you have a thorn. And sometimes these thorns are seasonal in nature. And other times, they will last the rest of your life. And you don't know which one it's going to be. He tells you what to expect in verse 10. A variety of difficulties listed. 1 Peter 4.12 tells us that we shouldn't be surprised when these things come upon us. If you have a thorn right now, the word for you is rest in God's grace. In those moments when you are the underdog, when you are unqualified, when you're totally helpless, and God still works in you, and you still are able to resist temptation to sin, and even though the world feels like it's crashing down around you, and you still praise his great name, These are the moments when power is really displayed. I mean, that is power. It's easy to say God is good when everything around you is just peachy. But power is shown 
when everything is bad and God's glory is still manifest among you. So how do you rest in this grace? Well, one of the greatest pieces of advice I've ever received, somebody told me a long time ago, when you keep stumbling through your Christian life, when you fall prey to temptation again, when you don't feel like God is near, (laughs) when there's distractions coming all over the place, what is the one thing you can do? Make an intentional or concerted effort to keep worshiping him. When the world is crashing down around you, say, I don't care what else happens, I'm going to worship him. Because when you worship God, whether that's in your private prayer life, whether that means coming to church, whether that means being with other Christians, whether that means through reading your Bible, when you worship God, you are placing yourself rightly beneath him. You are saying, God, I, I only see so much, and I only hear so much, and I only know so much, and I don't like what I see, here or know right now. But you know infinitely more. And you've shown your goodness to me. And you've shown that you are trustworthy and that you are faithful. And no matter what happens, I'm going to continue to worship you. And when you do that, It almost pulls you out of the temptation that we have for self-loathing. And it puts you back into the place where you can actually say, I'm going to boast in my weakness. Because here, this is where God's power actually is. I don't know what you're doing, but I know you're doing something. And your power is going to be displayed perfectly in this place. God is so abundantly gracious to you. There was a beggar by the roadside, and he asked for alms from Alexander the Great, as he passed by. The man was poor, and he was wretched, and he had no claim on the ruler at all, not even to lift a solicitous hand. And yet the emperor threw him several gold coins. And as one of his servants was walking beside him, he was astonished, and he said, Sir, Copper coins would be adequate to meet the beggar's needs. So why did you give him gold? And Alexander responded in royal fashion. Copper coins would suit the beggar's needs, but gold coins suit Alexander's giving. God himself does not just give you enough to get by. The grace that he gives again and again is more than enough. It's sufficient at the very least And his power is shown there. I close with this. A little boy had an accident and he was taken to the hospital. And after he was made comfortable, the nurse came into the room and she brought him a large glass of milk. And he looked lovingly and longingly at milk. But he did not pick up the glass. The boy came from a home that was impoverished, and his hunger was seldom satisfied. He rarely had milk to drink, and if he ever received a glass of milk, it certainly wasn't full. And even then, he was expected to only drink a portion and share it with at least one other child. And after some time had passed, and the milk still sat there by his bedside, he looked at the nurse and he said to her, How deep may I drink? And the nurse replied, drink it all. There's more. So it is with God's grace. 
some of us don't feel like we have had our needs fully met. They're only partially met from season to place to place in our lives. And just when you drink from the cup of God's grace and you think it's going dry, he is enough. And there's more grace for you. What a wonderful God we worship. What a wonderful God even to allow thorns. (laughs) As crazy as that sounds. What a wonderful God to show his power in you. He could show his power in all kinds of ways, and he chooses to show it in you. Isn't that amazing to think about? Friends, let me pray for you, because the topic of this favorite Bible verse is really a shift in perspective for the reality in which we engage day in and day out. The messages from all around us say God's blessing comes when you feel good. But here we see actually just the opposite. Sometimes God's greatest blessings come when you feel pretty bad. But his power is made perfect in you. Let me pray for you. Father God, we thank you for your goodness to us, your kindness and your grace. Your grace which is sufficient, your grace which never runs dry. A grace that is given to suit the giving of an emperor or a king. We love you. And I pray for those who have a thorn today that they would know this grace, that they would rest in it, that rather than turning in anger to you, that they would turn in longing to you and rely on you in it. For the rest of us, Father, we know our season is coming, whatever it might be. Maybe it's grief, maybe it's temptation, maybe it's persecution, maybe it's physical illness or pain. Prepare us, even starting right now, to know that when that moment comes, there's nothing outside of your view and there's nothing that your grace will not be sufficient for. We pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen and amen.